Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax cases to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is currently available as a service and will be licensable in July of 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in PwC's Policy on Demand studio in Washington, D.C., where I'm excited to be joined by Wade Sutton. Wade is a Washington, D.C.-based international tax partner, former Deputy International Tax Counsel for the U.S. Department of Treasury, and is the newly appointed leader of PwC's WNTS International Tax Services Practice. Wade, welcome back to the podcast, and congrats on the new role. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. So the last time I had you on the podcast, I think we went through some of the minutia of some foreign tax credit regulations. Which might be moot for the foreseeable future. Which is a great point and probably the subject of another (laughs) podcast. But the irony of all that time that we have spent on those rules, we'll we'll see if those are in fact moot, but certainly for taxpayers today. Um, But we were in my home turf in St. Louis. You were an alum of Washington University. We were talking about some of your favorite neighborhoods and area in St. Louis, and I think you admitted that you had pretty much not left like one square mile in St. Louis, which happens to be the neighborhood where I live, uh, particularly called The Loop, and you had not mentioned Blueberry Hill. Well, we're back in D.C. As you know, I lived here for three years, moved back to St. Louis during the pandemic. Interested, favorite neighborhood here in, here in D.C.? Well, that's easy. That's my neighborhood, which is Capitol Hill. I live off of Lincoln Park, and... You know, our friends are all close by. We walk to go get dinner. It's, it's just a, it's a good place to live. I, I got it. I really enjoyed living in D.C. I was at 16th and Q, kind of sandwiched between DuPont and Logan Circle. Spent a lot of time, particularly on 17th Street, a lot of great restaurants, really great community there. Um, so it's nice to, nice to be back in D.C., although just for a minute here. So um, we're going to talk about this new Supreme Court case Um, where the Supreme Court had granted cert and um, really started in June 26, 2023 is when the U.S. Supreme Court granted a petition for a writ of certiori in the case called Moore versus United States. The case involves the constitutionality of Section 965, or the so-called toll charge of untaxed earnings and profits of U.S. multinationals' foreign subsidiaries resulting from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. This transition tax, which was a fraction of the 35% tax that taxpayers otherwise would have owed if they actually distributed those earnings, taxed those undistributed profits held by foreign subsidiaries that were not otherwise taxed until dividends were paid, or if there were some part after, they would have otherwise been deemed distributed, and really paved the way to fund a lower corporate tax rate and the introduction of guilty in the TCJA. And I believe Wade, that it was like 340 or 370 yeah. billion that just Section 965 was estimated to in, include, and I think that went from the 2018 up through I think the eight years of the the transition tax. So, before we dive in, wanted to kind of set the table on what we're talking about here, but. 
I was going to play the role, if you don't mind, as law professor, where we're going to brief a case, since it has been about 27 years, I think, yep. since I was a 1L in law school. But well, why don't we start with what were the facts of the case, Mr. Sutton? Sure. Um, <laughs> it's been a while. It has been, huh? Um, so the couple here, Charles and Kathleen Moore, they live in Seattle, and they invested for a minority interest in Cassancraft, which is an Indian company. They make farm tools. And it was a pretty small investment. I think ultimately they made about $100,000 of profits, or that was the increase in value. We'll get to whether or not that's yeah. income. Um, and, and so when the toll charge rolled around, their interest was just barely over 10%. It was a CFC, so they were subject to the toll charge. And their tax liability here is about $15,000. So $15,000. Exactly. Yeah. So quickly burn up buying legal fees. I'll also note, Wade, and this is from Mindy Hertzfeld, University of Florida professor, well-published on tax notes. She pointed out in her excellent analysis on this case that if 965 is overturned and if the Moors received a distribution after 2017 of the same amount that was deemed distributed, it would be subject to a 37% rate of tax or $49,000 rather than the roughly $15,000 they paid. And that, of course, is because they're individuals. They can't subject themselves to the dividends received deduction and obviously don't get any foreign tax credit. So if they win, it will actually cost them. Right. on future distributions. If you, if, unless they just never get a distribution. Unless maybe you know, they never can... get a distribution and they're really <laughs> trying to save that $15,000. Right. So very interesting facts and facts that were selected, um, presumably strategically for, for, for this particular case. But I thought, Mr. Sutton, I'm doing my best Socratic method here, <laughs> that we could uh, start with a little bit of the procedural history. So this case was filed in the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. What were the taxpayers' arguments? I mean, essentially, they were two. And there were lots of different flavors of those arguments. Mm -hmm. But one was um, that this tax violated the 16th Amendment, which I think we're going to talk about mm -hmm. in a bit. Basically, it was not a tax on income, and it was a direct tax. And because it wasn't apportioned, it was unconstitutional. The other one was a due process claim about the retroactivity. Basically, that this is a tax on prior activities that is so far back that it's not giving a taxpayer fair notice uh, that would satisfy due process. All right, so those are the primary two, and then we'll, we'll get into sort of what, what the district court said and we'll head back to the procedural history. But why don't we pause here and provide us a little context on the 16th Amendment and, and specifically Eisner. So the 16th Amendment from 1913, and then there was this Eisner case. Give us a little bit of the, the backstory and help us understand, because yeah. frankly, I had to do some studying to remind myself of direct tax versus an indirect tax. And also that the corporate income tax actually preceded both of those. But why don't you provide us a little bit of technical yeah. context? Yeah, so let's go from the very, very beginning. Um, the Constitution does make this distinction between a direct tax and an indirect tax. And if you have a direct tax, ignore the 16th Amendment for a second, you're supposed to apportion it um, amongst the states in proportion to their population. Um, so what is a direct tax? It's basically a tax on people, like a head tax, a tax on property, like a land value tax or a tax on incomes from property. An indirect tax is anything else, so like an excise tax on alcohol or fuel. Um, what happened in the 16th Amendment, there was a court case, Pollock versus Farmers Trust, where you know, basically there was an income tax that was viewed as direct and overturned and because it was not apportioned. And so immediately the 16th Amendment was enacted to more or less overturn Pollock. 
And as long as you have an income tax, you don't need to apportion, right? You're not subject to that requirement. And that raises a huge question, which is the key issue, I think, in this case, which is what does income mean in the constitutional sense? Um, so Eisner v. McCumber was probably the first case to get into this. Um, that dealt with a stock dividend, right? Mrs. McCumber, I think her name was Myrtle, got a stock, like just a distribution of stock certificates, and uh, she was subject to tax on those, or at least the IRS argued that, but the Supreme Court ultimately said, well, no, you didn't realize any income, right? You sort of look at the text of the 16th Amendment, it talks about income from wherever derived, um, and, and they sort of glossed on that word derived and said, well, something has to happen, like you've got to convert your asset into cash or sell it, exchange it, whatever. Um, and for the longest time, I think Eisner kind of stood for this proposition that there was a realization requirement to have income. Now, fast forward a few years, you get to some other cases like Helvering versus Horst is a good example, or even Cottage Savings, where they start to back off of that statement um, a little bit and they start to describe the realization principle as one of administrative convenience, mm -hmm. right? It's like a clear rule we can follow, but it's not required. No case actually says that. Eisner v. McCumber has not been overturned, but that is essentially what the argument's gonna be about in this case. Um, the government is effectively arguing that it is no longer good law. Okay, and but th this issue of a realization requirement, but particularly in the context of subpart F, has been litigated in the past. Yeah, it has. And in those cases, you know, contrast the Moors. You've got a couple and they own like 11 or 12% of a company. They couldn't compel a dividend if they wanted to. They could beg and maybe the majority owner might be nice, but they have no, no power to do that. In the cases, and they're only circuit court cases, um, you're wholly owned controlled corporations where effectively, if you want a dividend, you can make it happen the very next day. And so they kind of ruled that there was constructive receipt of those earnings because the CFC was basically an incorporated pocketbook. And I think that's the notion there. Um, not necessarily applicable to these facts, so that might be one way you could rule in favor of the Moors without touching subpart F generally. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it has been litigated. And frankly, the, the district court, when they ruled in favor of the government, basically said, what, what are you talking about? Read these cases, please go away. All right, so per perfect transition then. So let's go, because the district court dismissed the case and you already have given a, a piece. So what, what did the district court say with respect to those, those two arguments on realization and retroactivity? Yeah, so retroactivity was probably not focused on that much, but you know, there's, there's some case law around this, Carlton in particular, and basically, as long as you're not impermissibly too far back in the past, a tax is not retroactive. Also, it did only apply to the year in which it was enacted, so on a technical basis, it was not actually retroactive. Mm -hmm. um, so there's that. I don't know if you think that's compelling or not. Um, we'll get to the future of that argument, which is there isn't one. Right. It was, it was dropped. Uh -huh. uh, and then this, which this, is unfortunate because that's an interesting issue as well. It's a, it's on his, to your point, it's on historic earnings, but it's not truly a retroactive tax. It's just base. It's just tax on earnings that were earned at some point in the past. Right. Um, and then on the Sixteenth Amendment, it, it was same thing. It was you know, this is a controlled foreign corporation. That definition sort of presumes an ability to, you know, control the corporation. We've litigated this. It's not an issue. And oh, by the way. Realization is not a constitutional requirement. Uh, and I think it was that last bit um, that a lot of people have said, well, I don't think you actually needed to say that to win this case uh, for the government. And um, 
you know, ultimately we'll see whether or not that is the basis the Supreme Court rules. Right. So if the Moors had not exhausted their potential $15,000 claim on legal fees getting this through the original district court, they then chose to appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. What happened What happened there? Yeah, I mean, same result, right? I think the, I think the district court judge was a senior judge, and the, the Ninth Circuit judges really dug into the analysis a lot more and gave it more full consideration. Um, but the taxpayer lost again in the district court. And frankly, if you put yourself in the judge's shoes, I would have done the same thing because... I'm a circuit court judge. I'm not going to undo the entire tax system. (laughs) I'll leave that to the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. if I actually believed it. Um, But um, there was also a pretty uh, well-reasoned dissent from some of the more conservative members of the Ninth Circuit um, that were really not only pointing out the realization issue as a constitutional requirement, but highlighting that this was sort of opening the door to a potential wealth tax down the road. And I think that is one of the things that got this case some more attention. Because as you know, wealth taxes, they've been bandied about on the Hill, part of campaign speeches. You know, it, it, it is a thing that could happen um, that, that is certain people's high on their agenda. Absolutely. And, and, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think one important point to note is that the language, particularly in the Ninth Circuit opinion, and I would posit that a lot of that was dicta, so in other words, it wasn't relevant to the actual case, was pretty strong in some of its language. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Which I think kind of inflamed the dissent and, and then query, you know, how much of that resulted in, you know, that whatever four judges, and we don't know from the Supreme Court, that that's what's needed to be able to grant cert, kind of looked at some of that dicta, looked at some of the language from the, from the majority opinion, and then looked at the, the language from the dissent, which specifically mentioned this potential wealth tax. Um, and so, so then, so the, the taxpayers then asserted their, uh, you know, filed a petition to the Supreme Court. What did they say in that? And they did cite that uh, the, the dissent or one of the judges from the, the dissent. Yeah, so they did drop the due process uh, argument on retroactivity and just solely focused on the 16th Amendment, that this is not income, you know, basically that this is a tax on property or wealth. I didn't realize anything, and so it should have been apportioned, right? That, that's the argument in a nutshell. Yeah, and that Ninth Circuit judge, was Judge Patrick, who had, who had that, that dissent that was pretty strongly worded as well. Um, so the, the other thing that, and, and we'll unpack this little bit, that the government mentioned was the potential collateral implications, which has obviously started to get a lot of attention. And the government specifically mentioned subchapter K and subchapter S, which are the pass-through provisions um, within the code. They also mentioned mark to market. They also mentioned subpart F as potential uh, areas of the tax law that could get upended, you know, should this realization yeah. requirement be required. So, um, you know, we, we mentioned some of the potential implications to the rest of the code, but maybe talk about like if the Supreme Court would just come out and we can talk about what some of the nuanced arguments might be. But what would be some of the collateral damage if the Supreme Court would say there is a realization requirement, this violates Eisner and the realization requirement. Wade, what does this mean to the tax code? And 
specifically, what does this mean to like budget estimates? And I think about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and you were on the Hill at that time, and Treasury or Treasury. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, you were Treasury <laughs> yeah. at that time. Thank you for the correction. I mean, you've become the professor, and I've become the student. <laughs> uh, um, you know what? What I mean, the, the budget estimates for you know as part of the Reconciliation Act. Talk a little bit about the, some of the collateral damage, and then we'll talk about how the Supreme Court might be able to try to limit some of that. Sure, and, and I'm not suggesting, unless you're super bored, that anyone should go do this. But when you read Eisner v. McCumber and you think about Subpart F and guilty and all of those things, it it seems pretty clear that if that's still the law, those things are in danger. So if you imagine the court has a broad holding and says you can't tax a shareholder on a corporation's income without a realization event, which is what Eisner says, um, then yeah, toll charge is gone, guilty is gone, subpart F is Subpart gone. F from 1962. I mean, guilty yeah. is new, right? Subpart F is from 1960, yeah. not as old as 1920. Now there's some, when we talk about the revenue, there's some procedural aspects here that like, not all of that is gonna be refunded to taxpayers, that they, they are sort of out of luck, and we'll get into that, I think. but. Um, the other things you mentioned, though, that, like that's a tough one. Like, what about accrual-based tax systems, like a mark-to-market system? Right. That, by the way, has also been litigated in the Ninth Circuit um, in favor of the government uh, under 1256. But and that's a lot of financial products, financial transactions, where we typically see that. Yeah. Or um, you know, sub K has been mentioned. Now, Which is how we tax part flow through a partnerships, current tax on yeah, partnerships. Yeah. Now, interestingly, about sub K, there's a weird sentence in Eisner that says. We're not talking about a partnership, which you can clearly tax the partners on that income. And as a tax guy, when you hear that, you're like, well, what's the difference? They're right. both entities. Um, but apparently it mattered to the Supreme Court. Um, I've heard some other things that I think are a little bit more remote or far afield, like subchapter S. You have to make an election to get into that, so I don't think that's really at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, people have raised OID, right? The original issue discount rules, mm-hmm. because it's an accrual-based tax system. I mean, who knows? Ultimately, the Supreme Court has a lot of options for a narrow holding here. And, you know, Justice Roberts, I remember during his confirmation hearing, there was this reputation he had about he narrowly ruled so he didn't have to, like, have broader impacts than the case before him. So, like, maybe it would be time to demonstrate that if he didn't want to really move. Like, if you think about it, these are load-bearing pillars in the tax system. So if you take them out... It's going to create a lot of chaos. Right. So then let's talk about that. How could the Supreme Court potentially limit the consequences? And we've already seen a number of amicus briefs, and I assume those are going to come. You know, mm-hmm. We're going to hear a lot more about that. But um, what are some of the potential theories? Sure. So one easy one is uh, just specific to the Moors. You say, okay, A, these are individuals, right? And there was actually a case... Uh, addressing the corporate income tax and whether that was an impermissible direct tax before the 16th Amendment. And, um, and they said, no, it's an excise tax for the privilege of earning income as a corporation, more or less. Okay. So if they constrain the case to say, okay, it's just invalid for individuals, then I think most of the corporate revenue that was in that, I think it was $340 billion, um, that's safe. They could also say they're minority shareholders, so they couldn't compel a dividend. And so... For most um, CFCs that I've experienced, they're wholly owned or majority mm-hmm. owned, so you keep that revenue too. Or they could take kind of the partnership language from Eisner and run with that and say, you know, CFCs are kind of like you disregard them in a way. You're taxing the owner on the income as if it was earned directly. We're going to run with that theory. And realization is met 
at the entity when it earns the income. Um, so I think those are three that you could trot out. Um, they could also rule in favor of the government. I think people forget that that is potentially an op option. Right. Although we should mention um, they do have the ability to revoke their granting of cert as improvidently granted. That's happened in the last year in a tax case. It, that could happen here too. Yeah, because presumably the IRS, Treasury, Congress will, I mean, presumably brief the Supreme Court just, you know, on what those potential collateral implications and do you have any, how, how does that well, process work? I, I think really it's going to come through the amicus briefs and okay. I've gotten a peek at a few of them and it's all, you know, the parade of horribles. Right. Of, do you guys really understand how much is at stake here? So. Um, I think that point will come across, and that'll probably give an incentive for a very narrow ruling that doesn't affect much else in the tax system. Yeah, and there's been quite a bit of, of already written on these potential theories, and you mentioned a few. Uh, one that I thought was particularly novel, and I know you were used to be an adjunct professor at, at Georgetown, and I don't know if, the, if, if Travis Nix was one of your potential, was one of your no, he, he wasn't, but I, I knew who he is. Yeah, and he relatively well published for for being. A, I'm not even sure he's officially a lawyer yet. I think he just graduated <laughs> from uh, from Georgetown, but I, I I was intrigued enough to mention that he suggested an article on the Hill. Dot com that maybe the the history and tradition test um, that that the Supreme Court has relied on particularly the first and the second amendments could be a way to limit the damaging on these existing provisions but also prevent a future wealth tax now presumably that would help uh, maintain the status quo on sub part F from 1962 kind of where you go back to history I'm not sure because you know sub F was 1962. Uh, that Eisner case, the realization was 1920, the 16th Amendment, 1913. Um, but thought it was a, a, an interesting theory, and I'm sure that we're going to hear a lot more on yeah. ways that the Supreme Court could potentially reduce the or limit the scope of their ruling without, as you described, pulling out one of the foundational pillars to our tax system. The other thing that, that I will mention, and I, I assume that we'll see more of this in the amicus brief, is because I, I would be remiss to have a cross-border tax talks podcast without mentioning pillar two oh, wage. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. But like if we take, if, if the Supreme court would find that guilty, for example, in sub F, then, you know, there is now pillar two is, 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 is coming, right. Yeah, that would effectively yeah. seed all of that taxing revenue, right. To those local jurisdictions under pillar two and point being is that the landscape has significantly changed, even from 2017, right, when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was enacted, let alone 1962 and before then, how international tax provisions. But, um, you know, I, I think that the, the, the concern that they, one of the concerns that, that should be the focus is that if they pull that pillar out, no, no pun intended, and yeah, subject yeah. the... Subject, and then other, you know, all these CFCs are now subject to pillar two. Those taxing rights are going to go straight to the, you know, other other fisks instead of the U.S. Yeah, the JCT would have to revise the estimate again. <laughs> right. Yeah, and <laughs> we that's are a good point. Like uh, the qualified domestic minimum top-up tax will soak up. Well, it already would, but but I guess the UTPR, IR, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. yeah, particularly for those jurisdictions. Right. We'll get to some point where the QDMTT soaks up everything, and then presumably the U.S. is going to have to re-examine our system of international right. taxation. That may take a few years for those 140 countries to get there. But um, all of this, I mean, it's just interesting that this is kind of this confluence of, of events is really where I'm going. The major changes in the international tax system, the Supreme Court case, 
the political insanity that I think we're all that that we're all dealing with um, from a policy perspective. I mean, lots of. Uh, uh, lots of stuff going on. So the other thing, kind of thinking about those downstream consequences, and we'll, let, let's just focus on Section 965 here, that as a result of the toll charge, those underlows historic earnings and profits became PTEP, previously mm -hmm. taxed earnings and profits, formerly known as PTI. Still a little confused why we changed the name of that. But the previously taxed earnings and profits then, you know, to the extent that they were already subject to tax under the toll charge, could come back tax-free as PTAP. And then if there was any foreign exchange gain or loss, that had to be recognized. Well, if 965 is held to be unconstitutional, does that mean the taxpayers now need to go back and, and sort of trace through those prior distributions or even for future distributions to the extent that statutes are still open to understand, well, did they meet the dividends received deduction under 245 cap A? And there are a number of kind of traps for the unwary on section 245 cap A. Like what, what are those downstream consequences on future distributions for those companies that were subject to 965? Yeah, I think for corporates, the game is all about 245 cap A. Would I have been eligible? And yeah, fair enough, not relevant for more though. For right, the for, for the individuals, you, you made that point that they would owe more tax on the right. contribution. So, and, and there are other types um, you know, of entities that can't claim DRDs. So, so in theory, they should be worried about this PTAP being taxed at a higher rate. Um, and they may have already distributed it, right? So it's out of their control. Uh, on the 245 cap A piece, in addition to that and thinking about well, I thought I had basis from the PTAP, and that's right. not there anymore. Another um, good point. Right, so you kind of need to think through the Rube Goldberg machine of like, what are the consequences <laughs> of this major change? Uh, but on top of that, and this is really hard, I don't know how you think about it or model it, but you gotta think about what is Congress or Treasury gonna do if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the taxpayer here, and all of these taxes are arguably unconstitutional. Are they going to sit still and like the world's going to be static other than this little change? Are they going to try and change the regulations or do retroactive legislation to try and patch some of the gap? Uh, you know, there's 340 billion of missing revenue. Are they going to just on 965? Right. Um, so you've got to think there's going to be a reaction in some sort of change. And Congress can do retroactive tax changes, right? That's the Carlton case. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's real. International tax is super complex in general, and you know this is just one example of that. Yeah. Uh, well, and you know, Wade, I'm an eternal optimist. I mean, maybe if, if this would just playing this forward, if this if this would be held unconstitutional, maybe we could end up with our first piece of bipartisan tax legislation in a number of years to help solve these issues. Well, we should r remind people, right? This was a Republican um, administration that passed 965. So I think you might be right. Right. So so and and then maybe. There will be any some additions to, to, to that, but the question that also then it begs is, well, if, if, if all of these provisions under guilty are, or including guilty, are not constitutional, does that then preclude the U.S. from enacting Pillar 2? We, we'll just leave that as a, as a, as a cliffhanger <laughs> because I have tried to limit the number of Pillar 2 discussions that we have, but it would seem to imperil our ability to potentially yeah, impact uh, Pillar would. 2 through the IR UTPR. So, well, Wade, this is a fascinating area. Um, I think really the only other Supreme Court case that I can think of during my career was the 
kind of international, very specific international tax related was the PPNL case on foreign tax creditability that the Supreme Court had ruled on. So um, it kind of the, the tax lawyer and nerd in me is, yeah. is very excited to, to see how this will happen, but also frightened to see what this could mean for, for the tax code. I know, it's interesting times. So thanks very much for joining. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Wade Sutton, PwC's Washington National Tax Services, International Tax Services Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.